Once again, it is my rich blessing to enjoy the Lord's Day morning with you, and thank you for that blessing, and I'm very glad that my wife can share the blessing with me this morning of being with you, so please say hello and uh, get to know her, and we're very glad uh, for this time with you today, and I thank you for the opportunity to share the word with you over these past several weeks uh, in October and November, and uh, thank you for feedback that I've heard that uh, lets me know that it's connecting with some of you and God is using it in your lives. And uh, that is my prayer and that is my desire. And thank you just for your kindness, your hospitality, all the ways that you've shown kindness and love uh, during these weeks together. And uh, we are looking forward once again to looking to God's word today. So please go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're continuing with the theme, The Better Way to Live which uh, rises out of Hebrews chapters 10 through 13. And today we're going to talk about where the sneakers meet the road. You've probably heard the term where the rubber meets the road. Well, because of the imagery that the writer uses here, I think you'll see that uh, sneakers or running shoes are a little bit uh, more appropriate for this. So we'll talk about the better way to live and uh, right right where your sneakers meet the road. How many of you recognize what's on this slide right now. Have you ever seen one of these charts? Anybody ever seen one of these in person? All right, if you've seen one, you probably saw it from a hospital bed or while you were in a hospital room or someplace like that because this is a pain chart that is used to gauge the pain that a patient is experiencing. And so medical personnel will ask you to look at this chart and point to the one that best shows the level of pain that you have. And so big smile, I'm fine, no pain whatsoever, hurts a little bit, smile smile is starting to fade just a bit there. Okay, now I'm feeling pain, it's hurting more and even more, and this hurts a lot, and pretty soon there's just no trace of any comfort or, or enjoyment on a person's face. They're in agony, it hurts the worst, all I can think about is this pain, and, and it's just almost more than I can bear. It's just sheer agony. Well, let's take that pain chart and use it to relate to your life a little bit right now. It might reflect physical pain that you're experiencing, uh, but also there are painful experiences that we have in life, uh, things that bring us emotional pain, life pain, mental anguish. It could be an ongoing medical problem. It could be a financial uh, difficulty or uncertainty. It could be a relational conflict. It could be a struggle that you're having just inside of your own soul, but it's bringing you to a place where you would say, you know, I'm experiencing pain in my life right now. And in fact, if you look at that chart, you could even identify with one of these and say, yeah, uh, right now everything's fine, or I'm feeling some pain, or it's really bad, or, you know, I just cannot even imagine it getting any worse right now. And, and the, the, the text that we're looking at today relates to this idea of experiencing pain. And, and in the imagery that the writer's using, it's in connection with the race of life. In fact, look with me at Hebrews chapter 12 and let me read the first few verses for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So you can see that the writer is addressing our lives. He's talking about it in the sense of a race. He's reaching back to Hebrews 11, that great cloud of witnesses, some of which we talked about last Sunday. He's saying they are examples to us. He's calling us to run the race with endurance. He's pointing to Jesus as the example. But notice there in verse 3 where he says, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He is acknowledging the reality that it's possible for you and for me as we run this race of the Christian life to grow weary and even come to the place where we are faint-hearted. To be weary is to be tired, worn out, exhausted. And that can happen to you physically. You can be physically worn out. You can be emotionally exhausted. You can feel completely drained of all strength in every area of your life because of the challenges of this life. And the word faint-hearted has in it the idea of letting go. The root word in the Greek language behind this means to let go of. And it's the idea of someone who just says, you know what? I can't take any more. I've gone as far as I can, and the burden is overwhelming, the pain is too great, and I'm just stepping back. In fact, if you are familiar with endurance sports like marathons or triathlons, events like that, um, you know that, that many people enter the race, but not everyone finishes the race. In fact, there's a, a category, a DNF, which means did not finish. And, and that's the way it is in, in endurance sports. That's also the way that the issue that the writer here is addressing in our lives. He's saying you can get to that place where you say, you know what, I, I just don't think I can go any further. So, so he's talking about people who live by faith and saying that you are susceptible to exhaustion and susceptible to discouragement. Now notice with me in verse 1 the key instruction that God's Word gives us here. It's near the end of the verse. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance. The word endurance has the idea of staying in has the Greek word meno, to abide or remain in it, to stay in. So think about the marathon. Think about the person who has run 20 miles and there's about six miles left to go. And that person is, is in agony. That person is exhausted. That person's muscles are weary and cramping. And, and all, all they can do at that point is put one foot in front of the other. And people are alongside saying what? Keep going. Hang in there. Well, that's what this word is addressing. To be weary is, is to let go. To be exhausted is, is, is to not want to continue. But he's saying, run with endurance. Stay in. Keep going. And hang in there. And that's exactly what, what God is calling us to do. So what is your source of pain? What is causing you to be discouraged? Is there anything in your life that's e that even has you at the place where you're saying, you know what, I'm not even sure I want to keep trying in this struggle against sin, in living this life, in overcoming these challenges. What can you do 
to help you keep going? Is there a source of strength? Is there, is there a source of, of energy? Is there something that can give you stamina, continue on? What can help you endure? That's exactly what the Word of God is telling us here, what those factors are. For a runner, often it's a matter of the mind, isn't it? Yes, fuel is necessary for energy. Yes, endurance of, of the muscles is necessary to keep going. But often it's just a matter of thinking in the right way to persevere. And that's what he's calling us to do. You see, he says there, looking to Jesus, verse 2. You see in verse 3, consider him. So what is it that we can do to help us to endure when we're facing these challenges, when we feel like, like just giving up and letting go and not finishing? Well, first of all, we need to have something to think about. And very simply, we need to think about Jesus. He talks about the witnesses who are along the way. These are examples of people who lived by faith. And, and the idea is, you can too, and that is true. But there's one that he elevates above the others and encourages us to think about, and that is Jesus, as he says in verse 2, looking unto Jesus. Jesus finished what he started. Jesus came to this earth on a mission. Jesus lived out the full life that God had planned and purposed for him. But that life included something extremely difficult, as he says here in verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured, stayed in the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So for Jesus, the race included enduring the cross. So he persevered through this life, and he persevered even through the extremity of the kind of death that he experienced. And what Jesus went through was pain at a level that we cannot even imagine. As Philippians 2 describes it, he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And not to be irreverent or to uh, be disrespectful toward Jesus Christ and what he experienced on the cross, but you think of that pain chart, and where do you think Jesus was? Jesus was at the extremity of pain. And there was the, the emotional pain of being rejected by his own creation. There was the anguish of, be, of injustice. There was the agony of the burden of sin placed upon him. And then, of course, there was the physical, the excruciating physical pain he experienced as a, real, as a result of, of the worst torture imaginable and the most anguishing death that man could devise. So Jesus was under that pain, and he, he stayed in, he hung on, he endured. And we draw encouragement from that. And we look at Jesus, we consider him and say, Jesus did that for me. And, and we should consider the fact that Jesus did that for you because he loves you. And that provides motivation. But he's not only our savior, he's our master. He's our example. And he says, consider Jesus who did this for you. He endured, you also endure. There's the gratitude for his love, but there's also the commitment to following his example. And that's what the writer is calling us to. So when you're feeling discouraged, think about Jesus enduring the hatred and the scorn, and the torture, and the degrading death. He's your example. He's your encouragement. So what are you enduring right now? What are you enduring by faith? What is causing you pain? What is producing discouragement in your life? 
Can you take that now and think in terms of, I'm going to consider what Jesus did for me, and I want to follow his example in this. How do you do that? How do you think on Jesus? Well, one way is just to read about him, just to read the Gospels, read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and see how Jesus lived and observe how he responded to the people who mistreated him and learn from how he reacted to the people who opposed him, didn't appreciate him, and consider how he responded to those who were, were hostile and those who served him injustice. And think about the faces. Imagine the faces and the voices of those who mocked him. And imagine what was happening as they crucified him. And think about what Jesus did for you. And think, you know, if Jesus Christ endured that, God calls me to endure whatever is causing pain and discouragement in my life. Read about him in Matthew chapter 4, where he endured temptation from the devil himself. Read Matthew 4. Read about how Jesus responded to that and persevered through that. Read Philippians chapter 2, which describes Jesus' descent from being in heaven with his Father and all the way to the, the crucifixion, the death by crucifixion, and, and draw hope from that. Pray. Pray about what Jesus did for you. Pray that you would understand it better. Pray that you would appreciate it more deeply. And pray that, that you would be able to emulate that. Lord Jesus, you did this for me and as my example, so would you please help me now, enable me to endure as you did. And sing, sing about Christ and what he did for you. As much of the music this morning focused on God's faithfulness and our thankfulness for that, and Jesus Christ's provision for all that we need in life and how we can run to him and draw strength from him. Sometimes when we're singing like that, we're almost just sort of going through the motions and saying the words out loud, maybe not thinking about them. But are there times when, when you see the text of a song and, and before it even comes out of our mouths, your heart reaches out to those words, those lyrics, and, say, and says, that's me. That's what I need. And, and before it even comes out of your mouth and your heart, you are lifting that thought to Christ and and drawing strength from it, and thanking him for it, and your heart is touched by that. So sing about him. The music that you listen to, let it feed your soul in connection with who Jesus is and what he did for you, and then talk about him. In fact, if you're going through a difficult time, you may know somebody else who has or is, and you can go to that person and say, you know, I've observed that, that God has helped you through your trials and through your challenges. Would you tell me what it is that you've learned about Jesus that helped you through those times? Or maybe it's the other way around. You see somebody else going through that difficult time, and you go to that person and say, hey, I see that, that you have some challenges right now. Would you mind if I share with you what God taught me and, and what I came to cling to about Jesus that helped me through my time of, of trial? Talk about what he's done for you. So these are ways that we can think about Jesus and draw encouragement and strength and help from. This is where the sneakers meet the road. This is how we pursue the better way to live. Now, the writer of Hebrews points us to another direction with our thoughts, and this one's a little bit more unusual, probably. He tells us to think about Jesus, but he also tells us to run with endurance by thinking about discipline. Let me read for us, starting in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Just like a coach instructs an athlete to train hard, um, makes the athlete lift weights and run sprints and uh, go through all kinds of resistance training and scenarios and deal with those, making that athlete get stronger and know how to deal with the situations, God does the same thing for us. He disciplines us as a father, and, and the writer of Hebrews wants us to think about that. That discipline makes us stronger. It drives us deeper. It prepares us for what God has for us. And there are reasons for our hardship. There are benefits to this, this discipline that we have, and we need to remind ourselves of them. And the first one is this. Hardship is a form of fatherly discipline. Hardship is a form of fatherly discipline. There are people and circumstances that make our lives hard. The ones that cause you pain. It's not just bad luck. These aren't just, you know, it's a bad day or a bad week. They're not random. They're actually intentional. They are allowed by God, sometimes even arranged by God. And God is actively molding you and shaping you through them. Now keep in mind, God does not punish us for our sins as believers. Remember we talked about this in Hebrews chapter 10? Jesus Christ, the one sacrifice for sins forever. He bore our punishment on the cross. We do not face punishment for our sins as Christians. When something bad happens to you, you know, you might think, well, I messed up, so God's making me pay for it. Uh, I sinned, and so God is punishing me. That's not how it works for a Christian. Jesus died for your sins already. He was punished for them. But what's happening is God is actually disciplining you not to punish you for sin, but for correction to help you grow and change into what he wants you to be. And sometimes it's not even associated with sin. We're thinking like, what did I do? What have I done that, that somehow provoked God to unleash all these problems in my life? I mean, I've been trying my hardest. I've been doing my best. Why is God allowing all this? You see, we equate, we equate sin or di we equate difficulty with punishment or that we're out of God's favor, but that's not true. He is our loving Heavenly Father, and yes, sometimes it is because of, of our immaturity or even our disobedience, but many times it's just a general process of God teaching us and training us and molding us into what He wants us to be. And so hardship is a form of fatherly discipline, and it is a discipline that actually assures us of our relationship with God. So remember, we're thinking on these things. You're like the runner in the race. It's getting hard. You're growing weary. You're running out of, out of energy. And maybe even feel like quitting. You're discouraged. And here are things to have on your mind. Thinking about Christ, who he is, his example. Thinking about this idea of discipline. This hardship I'm experiencing is a form of fatherly discipline. And it assures me of my relationship with God. That's what he's describing there in verses 7 and 8. 
the middle of verse 7. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 8, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Fathers who love their children, discipline them. If you're a parent who loves your children, you teach them and you train them and you guide them and sometimes you challenge them and confront them and they learn through it and develop through it and your heavenly father does the exact same thing for you, it is an assurance that you are his child. But let's go a little further. These may be basic for you, but this one is especially helpful and it has been for me. We need to think about the fact that the pain we're experiencing and the circumstances causing that pain actually deepen and strengthen our spiritual lives. Look at verse 9. He says, besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Now notice those two little words, and live. He's not saying, hey, your dad disciplined you, and you live through it, right? So when God disciplines you like a father, he's not going to kill you. You're going to live through it. You'll be okay. It's probably not what he's indicating here. Commentaries I've read on this describe the fact that probably what the writer is talking about is, is life on another level. It's the better life we're talking about here from the book of Hebrews, this, this better way to live. It's spiritual life. It's, it's the full life God wants you to have. It's the life of, of honoring Jesus Christ and, and glorifying him with your life. So these difficult circumstances push you to become acquainted with who God is and to depend on him in a greater way that actually deepens your relationship with him and that results in life, results in growth, results in, in spirituality, results in maturity, and the life that God wants you to have. And I want to give you an example of this, and this is on a personal level here. And I share it because it illustrates from my wife's life and mine together this truth, and also because it might encourage some of you going through a similar situation. We have four children. Um, they're all adults. Three are married. One is not married. They all live in the southeast. And by southeast, when I say that in Des Moines, people think, oh, southeast Iowa. No, I mean southeastern United States. So they live in South Carolina and Georgia. And um, our oldest uh, child, when he completed college, had a, he, he had professed faith in Christ as a teenager. And then when he completed college, he wanted to um, reach unbelievers with the gospel. And he had a strong interest in China. And so he joined an organization that uh, sent teachers to China, and he and his wife taught English in a university over there, and the purpose of that was to meet Chinese college students with the idea of, of building relationships with them to introduce them to the gospel. So he was involved in, in uh, missions there in that setting. And in that process, he started studying what those people believed and became acquainted with some ideas related to atheism. And through that, he became influenced by those ideas and struggled with his faith and had a lot of questions and eventually reached, reached a place of unbelief uh, regarding God and his word and everything related to Christianity. 
when he shared that with us, uh, of course, we, we were crushed. We were broken. We struggled with that. We began to pray. We began to talk and, you know, try to share things with him to, to affect his thinking. And we came to realize that this was not going to be a short-term situation. This was something that was going to be a long-term challenge and test. And that was eight years ago. That was eight years ago. And his thoughts have not changed in that time. He had to resign from his position in that organization and, and eventually left that, uh, that place. And so I don't want to focus so much on, on him necessarily, but on what that became for my wife and me and the impact that it had on us. That was probably the most severe test we have ever been through. I mean, each of us has lost one of our parents. We've had other tragedies in our families and in, in our lives but that was the most difficult thing that we've ever experienced. And so, of course, we began to pray. We began to pray for him. And I want to show you something. In fact, would you go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2? 2 Timothy chapter 2. Our hearts began to scan the scriptures for helpful verses and truths. And we began to turn some of those scriptural truths into our prayers this is one, um, one truth in Scripture that actually a friend of ours pointed us to, and we began to adopt it as, as a way of praying for our son. It also guided us in how we interact with him. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. There's that word, enduring. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. So those, those thoughts, as Paul was guiding Timothy and how to interact with people, began to guide us in our interaction with our son. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And those verses, that verse, those thoughts became our prayer. God, would you please grant this repentance? Would you please bring him to acknowledge the, the truth? Would you please recover and rescue him out of the snare of the devil? And, and I'm, I'm sharing this because we were driven to truth and then to dependence on God. And I would even say prayer out of dependence, but also desperation in asking God to work in his heart and praying these verses and these truths. So these verses guided us. These verses gave us requests to pray and also have brought before us some hope. God can do this. God does work in people's hearts to this extent and in this way. And so I would say that, that God has used that experience, as difficult as it is, as crushing as it is, the degree of grief that we've experienced in that, to push us to depend on him more, to understand his truth better, to pray more intensely. And it has become a matter of endurance, of staying in and of hanging on. I wish I could tell you the rest of the story is, all that's changed, but I can't say that today. We're still in that. We're still depending, still growing, and still praying. So going back to Hebrews 12, you understand what I'm saying here. Discipline deepens and strengthens your spiritual life. So are you 
in one of these painful experiences where you just need to hang on, just need to stay in, and can you look at that and say, you know what, God is driving me deeper. God is pushing me into his word. God is, is helping me grasp who he is and how he works in ways that I never would have if I had not experienced this. God is drawing me into a sweet dependence on him. I am finding joy and peace and hope, not so much in people or circumstances, but in God himself and in his word. And that gives us a whole new perspective, and it helps us to stay in. That has helped my wife and I to stay in, and I believe it will help you. When you feel like giving up, then remind yourself of this, that God is at work. Then, another truth to be thinking about and reminding ourselves is that although it is painful, whatever you're experiencing, whatever that source of difficulty is, whatever is discouraging, although it is painful, it is highly profitable. Look at verse 10. For they, speaking of our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. And now he's making a comparison to God's discipline. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness for our good. That we would actually share in something much greater, much higher than just this life that we would actually share in his holiness. We have to consciously choose to think this way. To share is to become a participant in. We actually have the potential of taking on the likeness of God on a human level, areas of Christ-likeness, and unless we go through those trials, unless we stay in the race, we won't grow. But if we do stay in, we find ourselves being shaped and molded in these likenesses of Christ, and they glorify Him, and that is our ultimate purpose. That's what God loves. That's what God wants out of us. That's what He deserves, is that our lives would glorify Him, that we would reflect His holiness to the, to the degree that we are humanly able by His grace. How many of you have heard the name or know the name Johnny Erickson Tata? You know that name, a lot of you. She goes by Johnny, used to be Johnny Erickson before she was married, and now her married name is Johnny Erickson Tata. I believe it was in the late 60s when she was 17 years old. She dove into a lake, hit her head on the bottom, and as a result of that was paralyzed for life. So from the age of 17, could not use her arms, could not use her legs, just barely her arms, but she was paralyzed. And as a, as a teenager, she wrestled with that. She, was, she despaired over that. But God turned that, turned her heart, and turned that in her life into something positive. And she developed a sweet spirit and a testimony for the Lord and has impacted who knows how many millions of people, even through her disability, for the glory of God. I was in our community library one day in South Carolina, looking for something to read, saw a title on the shelf, The God I Love. And the author on there was Johnny Erickson Tata. And I thought, hmm, I'm going to check that out. So I flipped it open and started looking through it and realized that, that she had written it. She wrote a book early on as, as a younger person when the accident first happened, and she began to process that. She wrote this one at the age of 62. Looking back, over her life. So, 17 years old, diving accident, 
paralyzed for life in a wheelchair, now at 62 looking back, and just testimony after testimony of praise to God and how God had used it in her own life of knowing God and loving God and impacting others as well. And what's imprinted on my mind is something she said in that book and has stayed with me, it has helped me, it has encouraged me, and I've shared it with others, and it's this. Johnny says, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God doesn't love to make us feel pain. God doesn't love divorce. God doesn't love illness. God doesn't love losing your job, you losing your job. God, God doesn't sit back and delight in these painful experiences we have. In fact, in his sovereignty, it seems sometimes he allows the worst to happen to us. He allows even, even sinful things to affect us. And you'd think he would prevent them. But in his wisdom, he doesn't. He allows what he hates, but he's accomplishing something eternal, something valuable, something he loves. He's molding and shaping in you and me a likeness to Christ. That is the treasure, Paul says, that we have in these earthen vessels, Christ in us. And then he's molding this holiness, this likeness to him. And again, he's using circumstances that, that are painful not that he delights in that, but he loves the product. He loves the outcome. And he loves us as a father and allows these things to happen in our lives. Now, these first two factors in running with endurance are important. Thinking about Jesus and thinking about discipline. But there's one more that is helpful to us. And we find that in the next section of this passage, starting with verse 12. So yes, think about Jesus, think about discipline, but then put yourself in a mutually strengthening relationship. And you're going to need to, to walk with me through this because I want to point to a couple of things in the text that help us see the point, the emphasis that the author has on this. So look with me starting in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that after when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. All right, let's look at a few things. You see there in verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. First of all, the word strengthen. You've heard of orthodontics, an orthodontist, or orthopedics, an orthopedic surgeon. The word ortho means to, to be straight, and that's the Greek word that's behind the word strengthen here. It has the word ortho in it. And it means to strengthen with the idea of, of giving restorative strength to something that is weak or providing healing for something that is disjointed, out of joint or broken. Notice also in verse 12, lift your drooping hands. A literal translation, some of your translations might say this, is lift the drooping hands and strengthen the weak knees. So yes, it's yours, 
but he's thinking beyond just you. In fact, the writer is addressing people. He's encouraging them. He is speaking into their lives, saying, I want to encourage you. And he's actually telling them, yes, strengthen your own, but also look around you. And generally speaking, where there is weariness and weakness and exhaustion and discouragement and injury and people who are potentially going to drop out of the race, say, hey, I want to help you. I want to strengthen you. I want to bring healing to you. Verse 13, make straight paths for your, and this is plural, your, all of you, for all of your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And again, commentaries indicate what he's saying here is, yeah, check out the path, make sure it's clear, so that you can move forward, but also considering the people coming along with you who have an injury, who are limping, because you don't want them to falter, you don't want them to stumble, you don't want them to fall, you're aware of them, you're conscious of them, and you're bringing them along with you. This race is not a competition, this race is a team effort. So he's saying, make those paths as, as accessible and navigable as possible, yes, for yourself, but also for the, the lame ones coming along with you, the, the hurting ones who are, are coming along as well. In fact, go with me just for a minute to Isaiah chapter 35, all the way back to the Old Testament, because the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting the prophet Isaiah, and we find what he said here in Isaiah 35, and I think when you see this, you'll understand why I'm emphasizing this mutual encouragement that's taking place. So the uh, Israelites were being um, comforted by Isaiah in their captivity because of their rebellion against God. And they were discouraged, rightfully so. But the prophet Isaiah is saying, you know what? God's going to turn this around. He will restore you. So encourage each other with that. So Isaiah 35, verse 3. Isaiah 35, 3. Strengthen the weak hands, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. You hear the message? Isaiah is saying, hey, this is for everybody, but this is also for you guys to tell each other. Strengthen each other. Encourage one another with this truth. So back in Hebrews 12, I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. And the, the Jews that, that, that this book is written to would make the connection. They would click on the link in their mind and say, oh, he's quoting Isaiah 35. He's encouraging us, but he's also telling us to speak into each other's lives and encourage one another. So what this is doing is telling us that this is something that we can receive, but we should also be turning around and encouraging others. So be that person. Don't just, don't just receive this encouragement, but be the person who speaks into the lives of others and helps them in their challenging times. And then he touches on a couple of other things. Verse 14, strive for peace. Is it possible for us to get into arguments and fights along the way? It is, isn't it? Throw some elbows, you know, step on some toes hurt some people. He's saying, wait a minute, we're all going the same direction. 
We're like a cross-country team. You know, we're all, all doing this together. And so, yeah, if you bump somebody, you hurt somebody, you offend somebody, get that right. Straighten that out. We're not trying to compete with each other. Certainly not hurt each other. Work at being at peace with each other. And then also make sure you help other people, verse 15, not fail to obtain the grace of God. Because those people around you, yes, yourself, but also those people around you need to know there's grace for that. Whatever that experience is, that source of pain, that hardship, there's grace from God to help you with that. And again, let me share that with you. Let me point you to that. Let me pray for you that you'd experience this grace in your life, that you would avail yourself of it, not fail to access it and receive it. Because what can happen to people? It's not a very big step from discouragement to bitterness, is it? We can become resentful against God. Why are you doing this to me? Again, so much. I mean, we, we tried to raise him right. We did the best we could. How, how could you allow this? What, what have I done to deserve all these problems in my life? You see, if we don't have the right perspective, we can develop a resentment toward God, which turns into that root of bitterness, and then you go down. And like Esau, you pursue material things. You get focused on this world. You indulge in sexual immorality. And you know what happens? When you go down, what happens? You take others with you, don't you? And that's what he says. You will trouble many. So be aware of the people around you. Hey, you're hurting. Let's talk about God's grace. Let me encourage you. And we're, we're going we're gonna to take these next few steps together, brother, sister, because I don't want you to fall into that resentment and that bitterness. I want you to know the grace of God, and I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to run beside you and help you through. So don't grow resentful and bitter in these hard circumstances. Avail yourself of God's grace in hardship, but also help others as well. As a pastor, I experienced a period of deep discouragement. I'm just being a little transparent here this morning. Pastors do get discouraged. You know that? And I was in a, not a good place, really. And I had a friend, and he knew that, and he was praying for me. And one day he said, hey, let's go have lunch. So he took me to lunch, and we walked in the restaurant. He said, we're going to go back here. So he starts walking to the back of, of the Chinese restaurant. As we reached the back, I saw a table for more than two. And there were about six men there from the church. And some of them, would, would, I would call them friends. Others, you know, just were members of the church. And uh, we sat down, and he said, we're here to encourage you. And we had our lunch, and they spoke words of encouragement to me, and they prayed for me. And that made the difference in my life at that point. That was used of God to carry me through a very difficult time. And I praise God for that. I've tried to do that with others. And that's the kind of person God wants us to be, isn't it? Not the ones who hold back and, eh, it'll get messy if I... If I start talking to that person, I, I won't even know what to say. How about, um, hey, you want to have lunch? <laughs> and uh, while we're at lunch, you know what? I appreciate you, and I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you? And let's talk about the grace of God. Let's talk about the example of Christ, and just know that you're not alone, and somebody's in, in the race here with you. That brings great encouragement. So be that person. Be that person. You don't realize the power of a few words of encouragement. Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Comfort 
the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. So we're supposed to turn out and look at others and see when they might be vulnerable and help them and speak encouragement into their lives. Paul, the Apostle Paul, knew other people needed it and that he needed it. He said in Romans 1, verses 11 and 12, I long to see you that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. And I look here again at Hebrews chapter 12 and the end of verse 13. So what is lame may not be put out of joint, not injured so badly they have to drop out of the race, but rather be healed. You can bring healing into somebody's life by the words you speak and the time that you spend with them. I enjoy cycling, road cycling. I'm a biker, not the leather and chains kind, but the spandex and, you know, that kind of biker. And uh, our, uh, in our town, our city, uh, there was a mission in the city that uh, was an outreach to homeless people and people who were addicted and abused women. And uh, for a fundraiser, they had a bike ride every year. And so I did it a couple of times. And, and uh, the longest ride was 100 miles. And in the upstate of South Carolina, you start out in kind of level ground, but pretty soon it gets hilly. And we had a couple mountains that we climbed as part of that. It was in June, an extremely hot and humid June day. And uh, we had climbed Caesar's Head, which is uh, about a, I think it's a little over 3,000 um, foot mountain there. At the top, stopped for a break. Everybody's just dying. We're just, you know, drenched in sweat and, and dehydrated and, you know, guzzling water and, and liquids. And uh, there were a few people at the top, and, and what you could do is you could do the 100-mile ride, or you could do the, uh, the 100K, which is, I think, about 65 miles. And if you were going to do the, 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 the 100K, you would turn around at the top of the mountain and go back down and head back to the finish. If you were going to do the 100, you kept going from that spot and then circled around and back down another mountain to the bottom. So at the top, everybody said, oh, man, we're dead. We're not going to you know, finish this. We're going to turn around. And there was another pastor there from another church. His name is John Lehman. And he kind of looked at me, and I looked at him. We're like, so what are you going to do? And um, uh, he said, well, uh, you want to go? You want to do it? You want to go for it? And I said, I don't know. And he said, let's go. And so, so we decided to finish out the 100-mile ride. So we left the, um, the, the rest area and started down the road. And about five miles down the road, I could feel my legs starting to twitch. Anybody get cramps in your legs? Okay, all right. I knew what was coming, and my legs just lock up when I get these cramps, and, and they just seize up with, with agonizing pain, and I started getting these cramps in, in my legs, and I said, i got to stop. So I pulled over, and I got off, and I stretched, and we were literally the last cyclists out there. So behind us is what's called the broom wagon. They come along and sweep up the stragglers, okay? So there's a pickup truck behind us, kind of like, you know, just kind of, kind of cruising along behind us, keeping an eye on us. You know, if we drop, they pick us up and throw us in the back. So they're back there. And, and I, I said, you know what? You go ahead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get on the truck. He said, no, let, let's just keep going. So he would stop while I stretched. And, you know, we did this time after time. And we just kind of made our way, you know, mile by mile across the, the tops of those mountains and then down, down the other one. And uh, at one point... I also was just ready to be done. And he said, he said, we're going to do this together, 
and I'm going to cross the finish line with you. So we descended the mountain and made it to the finish line. My wife was there. I think my daughter and her husband or two, two of my kids were there. Uh, the picnic had packed up and left. I mean, they were, they were gone. So it was about nine hours after we started that we crossed the finish line. And uh, somebody took a picture of John Lehman and I crossing the finish line together. So, so we did it. But, I mean, you understand the analogy. I would not have made it without him. Wouldn't have finished. Wouldn't have kept going. Wouldn't have crossed the finish line. But, but for me, it was more than just uh, a, a, an athletic event or even more than just a fundraiser for a good ministry. I learned a powerful lesson about friendship and about the kind of person who says, you know what, I'm in this with you, and we're going to cross the finish line together. Now, John Lehman has written a book. Guess what the title is? Encouragement. <laughs> He's that kind of guy. He's that kind of guy. But you don't have to write a book about it to be encouraging. And maybe that's the approach we need to take with each other sometimes, isn't it? We look around, we see people growing weak, we see them faltering, and we can just kind of keep going on our way and think, oh, I hope you make it. I'll be praying for you. And maybe sometimes we need to say, you know what? We're in this together. We're going to cross the finish line together. And that's what God calls us to do. And this is life. This is where the sneakers meet the road. This is where we pound the pavement mile after mile after mile. And we are called to endure. And we endure with a purpose. And we need to think about what Jesus has done for us. Think about the cross. And think about what God is doing in you. Think about that fatherly discipline with a purpose. And don't do it alone. Find a friend to encourage and to be encouraged by. Father, help us, we pray. Imprint these truths in our hearts. Help us to bring them to mind. Not just when we need them, need them but before we need them. And please help us to minister to each other and help each other to fulfill what you've called us to do. We love you. Thank you for all you've provided for us in Jesus Christ. And may we show our love and honor you all of our lives. In Jesus' name.